Thanks for listening to the First Take podcast. On this episode, we discuss the revenue outlook for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, what the future holds for Merck's Keytruda as a new standard of care for triple negative breast cancer, and Amgen's acquisition of Tenio Bio in a deal potentially worth $2.5 billion. Pfizer unveiled its second quarter earnings this week and confirmed that sales of its COVID-19 vaccine stood at $7.8 billion in Q2. Uh, This is up from a figure of $3.5 billion in sales that was recorded in the first quarter of 2021. And the company said that full-year sales of the vaccine are on track to reach $33.5 billion And this is based on um, current contracts that it has already signed with um, various governments around the world, uh, amounting to 2.1 billion doses of the vaccine. Uh, Pfizer also noted that it has a capacity over the course 2021 to manufacture approximately 3 billion doses. And it expects these additional doses to also be sold uh, over the remainder of the year, uh, but did note that most of these um, are likely to go to um, middle and low income countries where there is obviously going to be a lower amount of revenue per dose. Um, one of the Wall Street analysts covering the stock um, estimated that he, he thought that additional sales would probably be worth around $10 billion. So we're looking potentially at Pfizer generating full-year sales from its COVID-19 vaccine of around $45 billion in 2021. Just for comparison's sake, um, the biggest selling drugs in terms of annual sales, um, the previous benchmark, if you will, um, AbbVie's TNF inhibitor, uh, Humira, generated sales of around $20 billion last year, as expected to, to bring in a similar amount, similar amount this year. And obviously, a few years ago, uh, we had um, Gilead Sciences, um, Harvoni and Savaldi uh, hepatitis C franchise bringing in a similar um, figure, I think just shy of $20 billion. So Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine could generate more than double um, this amount of sales over the course of this year. Uh, put another way, uh, Pfizer generated total revenues of $42 billion last year, so it could double its total revenues um, this year versus uh, 2020. And another comparison that I think is relevant and interesting that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, you know, this sales uh, figure from, from the COVID-19 vaccine is going to surpass uh, total revenues for a handful of other what we would consider big pharma companies. And one of those is AstraZeneca, who are obviously a competitor in this space. Uh, they're on on the course to generate total revenues of about $30 billion this year. So, Michael, absolutely um, sort of eye-watering sales for the COVID-19 vaccine that's that's being manufactured by Pfizer. And the company says that it has the capacity next year to manufacture even more, uh, approximately 4 billion doses of the vaccine. 
<laughs> yeah, it's just when you hear these figures being thrown around, $45 billion in sales in one year is just sort of mind-boggling. Um, but the question is um, whether that's going to be just this one-time thing or how sort of long the tail on revenues is going to be, not just for Pfizer, for Moderna, for AstraZeneca and J&J &J and all the other companies. So the, the real key talking point is, you know, how long this immunity is going to last and whether another booster shot or booster shots will be needed. That's sort of the, the talk of the town at the moment. And recent data seems to suggest that there is a, a decline, in, you know, a waning of protection with the, the two-dose regimen, uh, at least against um, more moderate disease. It's not clear that it's, it's um, falling off for serious illness. But, you know, that's the big question, you know, are regulatory authorities going to approve, um, you know, a booster dose? Will it be necessary? Is it good for humanity and patients? Um, obviously, that would be good for companies. Um, you know, that's that's the big talk um, where we're at right now. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, very, very difficult to say. I mean, I, I think I'm right in saying that. Um, the Israeli government has agreed a deal with Pfizer to start um, uh, providing its citizens with this third booster shot. Um, and Pfizer yesterday on its earnings call was citing some data out of Israel um, for, you know, to, to justify the need um, for this third third shot of the vaccine. Um, as you as you mentioned, Michael, really the focus being the fact that um, you know, efficacy against mild to moderate infection does appear to wane um, at about six months after the second dose of the vaccine is administered. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, we're going to probably learn relatively quickly because obviously, um, you know, the, the countries that have been at the forefront of uh, using this vaccine are now reaching that point where a decision needs to be made. Um, and Pfizer is in the process of putting, um, you know, they, they presented some very preliminary data yesterday. They're going to be putting that data together and um, starting a phase three study and saying that they could potentially seek um, emergency use authorization for a booster shot with the US FDA um, as soon as next month, actually. Um, what they did say is that if it is approved, um, you know, I think there's a there's a high likelihood that there are going to be certain um, people who are more likely to need a booster. So, you know, older people, uh, people whose immune systems are compromised. Um, but obviously, it's going to open up, you know, a whole host of questions about, um, you know, where this process goes. Is it going to be that, um, you know, we're going to need, um, you know, annual boosters um, and what proportion of patients are going to need those? And it's really, you know, it comes back to this idea of, um, you know, the sustainability or the durability of this huge um, revenue stream that Pfizer is currently generating. And I guess it's also that idea of, you know, how small does that shrink? I think everyone's in agreement that it's obviously going to decline over the next couple of years. But how small is it going to be um, and, and, and how much of it is sustainable over time? Uh, 
the thing that really jumped out at me, sort of taking a kind of a step back from, from Pfizer's sales in particular, is that we had AstraZeneca uh, reporting their own um, quarter two um, earnings today. And they noted that their sales of their vaccine um, were $1.2 billion uh, for the first half of 2021, which uh, compares to approximately $10 billion for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, what's really interesting is, you know, AstraZeneca making the point that they're not making a, a profit on this vaccine. They're sort of providing it at cost. And actually, they made a loss of $13 million in Q2, um, which they say, you know, the, the production uh, and the distribution of the, of the COVID-19 vaccine contributed to. You know, it seems to me that there's this kind of uh, really notable juxtaposition of, uh, you know, the situation AstraZeneca finds itself in with its vaccine and the situation that Pfizer finds itself in with it, with its vaccine, um, you know, its total revenues uh, in the first uh, in, in Q2, Pfizer's were up 92%, you know, its profit was up 59% to about $5.6 billion. Um, obviously, these two vaccines have taken very different paths over the last, uh, you know, I guess it's about eight or nine months now since those first uh, initial phase three data were released. And whilst I think AstraZeneca have, have, have probably taken a number of missteps and have got themselves sort of caught up in some political controversies, should we say as well, particularly in Europe. Um, you know, to me, it's really interesting that we're one of, you know, one of the reasons I think that's going to be put forward for uh, not using a, a, a booster dose of the Pfizer vaccine is that its efficacy against severe disease and hospitalization is still pretty consistent. And then actually, if you look at the AstraZeneca vaccine um, in terms of those efficacy metrics, you know, I, I would question whether it's really, you know, whether the disconnect in kind of commercial performance of these two vaccines is really justified when you look at the effectiveness of them um, in terms of, you know, preventing severe COVID-19 infection or indeed hospitalization or death. So it's just, in my opinion, it's a pretty sort of fascinating um, situation that we find ourselves in looking at the, the performance of these two vaccines. And then I guess the third point that I'd make just quickly is that there's kind of this secondary disconnect which is between the revenues that Pfizer's generating and the reaction of investors. So Pfizer's share price is only up about 6% for the year to date. And if you look at its performance versus the other big pharma companies, it's sat there right slap bang in the middle. It's an average performer. Um, you know, if anything, it's a slightly below average performer when you look at, you know, you look at the sort of big pharma peer set as a whole. And so it's got this huge bump in sales that, you know, this year that could continue into next year. But a lot of investors sort of seem to almost view this as like a kind of a ghost revenue stream. You know, um, they're not really sort of perhaps giving, you know, I think the company is probably a bit perplexed that they're not maybe getting, um, you know, the, 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 the plaudits or the recognition that they should have because, you know, this is obviously generating cash flow 
that you know Pfizer is going to be able to reinvest um you know hopefully uh, to to kind of bolster its R&D pipeline <laughs> yeah either the investors are not giving them like any credit for their their business development acumen or they you know just don't really have much faith that they're going to return it to share i mean they could return it to shareholders in, in various ways through share buybacks or dividends yeah it's interesting that um the the share price really has not um done what you would have thought based on a, a 45 billion dollar sales product uh, that's crazy and i i mean i suppose you could say the same for astrazeneca is that you know they've they've attracted um maybe negativity is too hard a word but i think you know their role in the in in the development and 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 the distribution of their vaccine has definitely caused them some headaches i mean in from their perspective they're probably one of the you know the underlying performance of astrazeneca is pretty strong you know they're a company that seems to be doing well in terms of you know the late stage pipeline um, they've done some pretty bold in licensing, in licensing deals in the last couple of years, but they look really promising. You know, they've had this kind of this resurgence as an oncology player. Um, you know, some really interesting sort of sales growth data today for their SGLT2 inhibitor Farsiga as well. So it's not all about cancer. Um, you know, they're a, they're a really sort of well-performing company at the moment. And I guess the sort of the, the contradiction, again, it's another interesting dynamic looking at the two companies together, is that, you know, Pfizer spoke a lot yesterday about its pipeline. Um, but I'm not entirely sure that investors are fully buying into to their excitement about what's coming through in terms of future products. I think there's, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, investment that's been made in things like gene therapy, but we... We kind of know that they're, you know, these are these are areas of kind of high science and, and sort of um, potentially kind of giant steps in the long term. But whether they can kind of provide the sort of the, the, the midterm revenue boosts that investors are looking for, I'm not so sure. Um, you know, the, the classic line that Pfizer took yesterday as well when they were, in, you know, asked the inevitable question about what they're going to spend their money on, you know, is that. The situation hasn't changed. You know, they're always on the lookout for acquisitions. They're always on the lookout for in licensing deals. Um, I mean, we I, I would assume that obviously some of this revenue uh that is being generated on the back of the COVID-19 vaccine is going to go um into more business development. As you said, Michael, as well, some of it will, will probably go into share buybacks. But you know, they've done a couple of deals recently, and I think we'll probably see more of those in the future. Uh, Merck & Co announced its Q2 results earlier today, confirming that sales of its flagship cancer drug Keytruda stood at $4.2 billion in the second quarter and $8 billion for the year to date, driven by its broad label, which encompasses multiple tumour types, including lung cancer and renal cancer, as examples of particularly large market segments. Now, according to feedback from key opinion leaders, uh, Keytruda has also become an important new treatment option for advanced triple negative breast cancer, particularly in the US market, following its approval by the FDA in November 2020. And its status is set to be enhanced further following notable updates which were announced this week. 
Its accelerated approval in the metastatic setting has now been converted to a full approval. And Merck also confirmed that in the relevant Keynote 355 study, Keytruda has demonstrated, at the top line at least, an overall survival benefit, details of which will be presented at a future medical meeting. And Merck also confirmed this week that Keytruda has been approved by the FDA to treat high-risk, early-stage triple-negative breast cancer as both a neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapy on the basis of data from the Keynote 522 study, um, which was actually only just recently presented. Michael, I know you spoke to a key opinion leader, I think it was last week, before these announcements uh, were sort of made, but they're still incredibly relevant, as was your, your conversation with that KOL. What's your kind of take on where Keytruda now stands um, in the triple negative breast cancer market? Yeah, it, it feels like, um, well, it's a fluid situation with all these news events hitting uh, in pretty much short succession and I'm sure that will change things but basically it sort of reminds me of the quote I've seen about soccer where you know it's 22 players chasing the ball around for 90 minutes and at the end the Germans win sometimes like the battle among these amino oncology drugs sort of feels kind of like the same thing where it's like a bunch of companies running trials for a few years and at the end Keytruda always wins and it's sort of where we're going here um, there's some parallels with what happened with lung cancer where BMS and Opdivo seemed to get the jump on Keytruda, but then Keytruda came back and leaped, uh, leaped into the lead and uh, took the huge market for themselves. It seems like triple negative breast cancer is heading in the same direction. So Tecentric got the jump on Keytruda when it was approved in 2019 in the metastatic setting. But now, based on these readouts, some of which you just mentioned, but readouts and approvals, Keytruda has come storming back. And now just this week, they were approved in early stage, um, which is a setting where Tecentric is not approved yet. So they have a, a pretty big advantage there. Um, so I talked to the KOL just before that announcement was made. Um, and she was saying, Keytruda clearly just has the, they're in the driver's seat. You know, they, they now have this early stage approval. The metastatic data arguably maybe a little bit better but she was saying that you know i think that t said she was saying if t-centric basically comes up with early stage data that it looks somewhat comparable to keytruda then it's probably going to have a good shot of competing i think the one thing that changed was that not only was keytruda approved in the early stage setting but there was that second announcement that came out basically in, in parallel with it where it demonstrated a an overall survival benefit in the metastatic setting, which importantly is something that T-centric has not shown. And so I think that that really, really sort of drives home Keytruda's advantage in the triple negative setting. And I, I reached back out to the KOL and she agreed that, yeah, that, that is a pretty big, uh, pretty big uh, booster for, for Keytruda. And they clearly have a, a big leg up at this point, not just having the early stage label, which Tecentric doesn't have, but now in the metastatic setting, they have the overall survival advantage they can point to, which Tecentric also doesn't have. So, um, you know, it just see, it feels like another tumor type that's uh, trending in the direction of Keytruda and uh, Merck taking, uh, taking over in, which I guess, you know, we should get used to at this point. I think the other thing is, 
from memory is that you know in the metastatic setting Keytruda is approved with that uh, you know it can be used with various types of chemotherapy so I think it you know it gives the oncologist a choice whereas I am I right in saying I think Tocentric is maybe a, approved specifically with a Braxane um, yes because there was there were some updates some some clinical updates so not just has Keytruda been basically generating positive readouts in in there I think it was last year Tocentric had some some rather discouraging readouts where it basically only showed a PFS advantage when it was added with NAB paclitaxel, which is a Braxane, and it didn't show an advantage with, with some other chemo. So yeah, you're right. Like basically Merck has sort of a, a broader, um, easier to use label in the metastatic setting as well. I think, you know, the other interesting thing as well about Keytruda, you, you alluded to it, Michael, you know, there, I think there's that familiarity, um, you know, status with it that lots of you know, we'll, we'll speak to key opinion leaders about different cancer types and a, a familiar sort of theme that we hear back is when they're talking about community oncologists, um, you know, who, who, will, who will not specialize in a particular area, but will, will treat lots of different types of cancer. The, the fact that Keytruda has got such a broad label um, really plays in its favor because, you know, they're used to the drug, they're used to the processes of getting the drug and how patients can get access, etc. But and I would also suggest that there seems to be this kind of familiarity with Keytruda from the FDA as well, because they seem to have this amazing track record of getting rapid approvals. They're obviously providing, you know, fantastic kind of regulatory submissions. But obviously, in the case of the early stage um, neoadjuvant and adjuvant data, this is something we've spoken about previously. They obviously had um, the rejection from the FDA based on the, um, the the PCR results. That was only a couple of months ago, and then you know these updated um, event-free survival data were were presented at an ESMO sort of virtual plenary session that was online. And I think that was just sort of earlier this month. And suddenly, you know, it's been approved. So they seem to have this fantastic track record as well of getting the the, the relevant data in front of regulators, particularly the FDA, and then, um, you know, getting the, the, the rapid fire approvals on the back of that. One other thing that I would mention is we ran a, we ran a, a sort of a super brief, you know, snap poll to US oncologists. Um, Actually, it was U.S. and European oncologists based on those data that were presented recently in the um, neoadjuvant and adjuvant settings. And it did seem that a lot of oncologists were sort of super enthusiastic about these results, even, um, you know, with these with these data being event free survival. I think in the um, Keynote 522 study, I think overall survival is a secondary endpoint. And I think the data is trending positively. Uh, and we did have some oncologists were saying, look, you know, we would wait until the OS data hopefully matures and is, you know, statistically significant in favor of the, the Keytruda um, treatment arm. But I think overall, I think that, you know, the response seems to be, you know, that there's a lot of enthusiasm for this data. And I guess, you know, that speaks to, um, you know, the, the, the difficulty that there has been um, in developing new therapies for triple negative breast cancer, which is you know, particularly aggressive.
Amgen said this week it will acquire the bispecific and multi-specific antibody specialist Tanio Bio for an initial $900 million. The deal could rise in value to around $2.5 billion, uh, contingent on milestone payments to equity holders in the uh, private company. Uh, a few things to note. This is the third acquisition Amgen has announced this year. It's previously acquired Rodeo Therapeutics and Five Prime Therapeutics. Um, and this Biospecifics, Michael, is an area of R&D um, where we know that Amgen has been invested in for some time. Yeah, so this I think it's pretty interesting that they're going out and getting another what seems like platform company in the bi-specific or multi-specific space because um, it was just under a decade ago where Amgen paid $1.2 billion for Micromet. And with Micromet, they brought in um, the, the Byte technology, which was all about these bi-specifics. And I think it's particularly interesting that just a few months ago, it was in February, in parallel with their fourth quarter uh, earnings announcement, and uh, Amgen announced sort of a whole raft of um, programs, bike programs that were being paused and sort of shelved and that sort of thing. And now they're going out and paying $900 for Taneo Bio to get a whole different, um, you know, bite at the bi-specific and multi-specific apple, I guess. It's, it just sounds pretty interesting um, and makes that, that news rather um, notable, I would say. Just to note, it's $900 million, not $900. Did I say 900? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the difference? <laughs> a couple I zeros. I think the other interesting thing about this company that they're acquiring as well is that, that you know, they've got a pretty, you know, they've got a pretty impressive sort of roster of, um, you know, prior in licensing deals with other companies using their platform. So I know AbbVie and J&J and Gilead and GSK have all sort of partnered up with, with Tenny Bio in the past. Um, and then the other kind of interesting thing is that they've actually spun out a number of affiliate companies based around those individual assets. So they're kind of being carved off and they aren't part of what um, Amgen is acquiring. Um, but I guess it still kind of validates their approach. And actually, it's interesting that AbbVie has acquired the, the, the spun out company, which is called Tenio One. Um, they've actually agreed to acquire that last month. And that's, that has been spun out around um, an anti-CD3 BCMA bispecific that AbbVie is working on with Tenio Bio as a potential treatment for multiple myeloma. So I guess clearly Amgen has sort of seen the work, um, you know, that the company's done. And also, you know, that it's obviously attracted other, um, other partners in the past. A lot of a lot going on here with Taneo Bio. It's you know it seems like sort of a, a smaller company, but man, they've got a they got a lot going on here. Yeah, um, I can't remember exactly when they were established, but it's not you know they were they were a relatively young company as well from memory. I mean the the other thing that sort of jumps out with this deal as well, um, and I'm, I apologize because I haven't got any kind of data in front of me. But it feels like we are seeing a lot of these deals at the moment where, um, you know, there's one sum of money paid up front. In this case, it's nine hundred million dollars. 
and then there's kind of a contingent amount you know based on uh you know development milestones and we've seen this you know we've seen quite a few deals this year um that have kind of been structured in this way and obviously the other trends that we've seen in in 2021 is this kind of complete slowdown in M&A so it feels like um you know not only is M&A kind of has you know decelerated but there does seem to be that you know people are being a little bit more adverse um to risk in terms of the acquisitions that they're doing which i think is definitely something to watch out for um the interesting thing being as well is that actually we've sort of spoken in the past in licensing deals i'd say it's maybe gone slightly the other way that you know big pharma companies have, have been quite happy to sort of hand out fairly large upfront sums for phase one um assets um in deals that have been announced this year so kind of two sort of slightly maybe complementary maybe conflicting depending on your your kind of viewpoint but sort of trends there but i, I think that's definitely something um that's going to be worth sort of watching in the future and obviously michael i guess we can tie into that as well this whole idea of you know there are big pharma companies that are going to need to, you know, bolster their pipelines. We've spoken about Pfizer and I think it was Merck today as well. You know, Merck, we've spoken about Keytruda. Keytruda is making Merck, you know, a lot of cash. And they seem to be, you know, when I heard their earnings call today, management seemed to be pretty, I would say, pretty open uh, and candid in terms of talking about, you know, yeah, they're on the lookout for deals. So I, th I think it's definitely something that we're going to hopefully see pick up over the next six to 12 months i don't know if people are waiting on pfizer to uh to do something since they're the ones sitting on all this money um but maybe pfizer's waiting on everybody else to to sort of show their hand and then they'll just come over the top and you know whatever you're gonna you know offer for this company well we'll offer five extra percent on top of it because they got 45 billion dollars extra in the bank at this point yeah so who knows it's a uh, it, there's a lot of money out there. And uh, so you'd expect that the, the trends will have to turn around at some point on uh, acquisitions.